Hundreds of people are dying from drug overdoses every year in San Francisco, and the rate of deaths recently spiked. One strategy to address this is creating safe consumption sites. The idea is straightforward. They're places where people can use drugs with trained staff nearby who can intervene if someone overdoses. But the controversy around them, the considerations that go into planning and running sites like these, are far from simple. Critics say, Nobody wants to be sounding like they're, you know, anti the person who needs the help. People want that person to have help. But the fact is, when you have illicit drugs being used in a neighborhood, in a fixed spot, you're going to attract more drug users. You're going to attract the dealers. Meanwhile, supporters say, I understand that, you know, people would be wary of having a safe injection site in their neighborhood. But also, I think it's important to have safe spaces like safe injection sites where people in a judgment-free environment can talk to people with experience that understand and that just are there to help. Because it starts with believing you're worthy of getting better. Local elected leaders have been clear they support building places where people who use drugs can rely on someone to revive them if they do overdose. But these centers are illegal under federal law, and that has stopped the city from establishing one. Some critics say that's good, because the city should be investing in treatment and other interventions instead. I'm Laura Wenis. Today on National Fentanyl Awareness Day, we'll hear arguments for and against the sites and dig into what's kept enthusiastic city leaders from building them. From the San Francisco Chronicle's SF Next project, this is Fixing Our City. San Francisco is expecting more than $130 million from lawsuits against opioid distributors. City leaders, including Mayor London Breed, have supported establishing safe consumption sites for a long time. But it's far from a done deal. And the idea is controversial, even if the central concept, keeping people alive, isn't. We're all after the same goal, really. We want people to live long enough to get treatment. Absolutely. This is Ellen Grants. I am a mother of two teens. I always start with that because it's my primary role. I think my sort of involvement in trying to understand more about the homelessness and addiction crisis started with a protest in the Tenderloin. The Tenderloin residents were doing a protest because the conditions had become so unsafe. And I joined a group called Mothers Against Drug Addiction and Deaths because addiction runs in our family. And I worry so much about the exposure kids have to drugs, the mental health issues that a lot of people are facing. Whenever these sites open, they end up attracting other people from maybe within the city or outside the city because there's an impression that people have that the community is more accepting of drug use. Now, we have many of the mothers in our group whose kids were not from San Francisco. They came to San Francisco because of the culture. It's the culture of being permissive that draws more people in, and it makes it harder to solve the problem. That's one of the main critiques of safe consumption sites, that they make it seem okay to use. This argument has also been made about clean needle programs and distribution of the overdose reversal drug naloxone. The American Medical Association recommends expanding harm reduction approaches, but critics say these services enable addiction. In my view, it's not enabling people. This is Madeline Sweet. She used fentanyl for years and nearly died of an overdose. If people were actually making that decision in their head, they could actually break down, oh, I don't have Narcan available, therefore I should not be using this deadly substance. 
I mean, people would have stopped using a long time ago. The reality is that we're doing it on compulsion and it it is not going to stop us nor encourage us. If addiction were something as simple as a decision, people wouldn't choose to be addicts. Nobody would choose to be a drug addict or an alcoholic. Never. Sweet isn't one to sugarcoat or glorify drug use. A few years ago, she was destitute, living in a tent by a river in Santa Cruz, near the end of a hiking trail aptly named Hell's Trail. She was no stranger to San Francisco's drug scene, though. She'd lived in her car in San Francisco, and even when she was staying in Santa Cruz, she'd make drug runs to the Tenderloin. So one night, I took what's known colloquially as a hot shot. Basically, it was just too much or too strong a batch of fentanyl, which, as most people know, is already a potent drug. And I OD'd, according to the people in the tent with me. My lips turned blue. I slumped over. I wasn't really breathing. And it took like three things of Narcan to bring me back. I've never predicated my drug use on the availability of like life-saving measures. But because kind, compassionate people, volunteers oftentimes would come down the trail and bring us different things, clean needles and offering to take us the doctor or get us connected with rehabs and stuff like that. But ultimately, they provided us with that life-saving antidote to an overdose. Now she's employed, sober, and living in San Francisco. Sweet didn't have access to a safe consumption site. She says she would have gone if she'd been able to. Not just because the chance of dying if you overdose is so much lower there, but also for the chance to be around people who might have made her feel like it was worth trying to stay alive. If you feel like a, a shit person, you don't really even feel like you, what's it worth? You know, I have emails that I sent to my mom when I would go to the library when I was living in a tent. I would say to her, like, just let me die. Like, it was, I mean, it's so, I think back on it, like my poor mother, right? Like I felt wow. like I was just okay with, spiraling out until I died because I just didn't feel worth getting better. And what happens when it, when you go to a safe consumption site, right, is, you know, the same way those, those volunteers would come down in a judgment-free zone, they put that little seed in your mind that there's a way to get clean. You don't have to do this forever. And there are people that aren't going to force you and they're not going to judge you. You know, the point is that we should keep people alive, even if they're drug addicts, even if they're homeless, even if they're mentally ill, they deserve to live and maybe have a shot at recovery. I think it's fair to say Ellen Grants from Mothers Against Drug Addiction and Death would agree completely, though she points out that there have now been deaths in safe consumption sites. The British Columbia coroner has recorded a total of two deaths in these sites. For context, staff there have reversed more than 6,000 overdoses over the course of millions of visits since 2003. The recent deaths might also be due to a changing drug markets. Overdoses spiked after fentanyl hit the scene. Grant's other critique is that safe consumption sites aren't so good at linking people to longer-term treatment and recovery. Critics point to San Francisco's Tenderloin Linkage Center, a resource hub open for most of 2022, which at some point also started allowing drug use on site. It reversed more than 300 overdoses, seeing zero deaths, but only connected a tiny portion of visitors to treatment. If you're trying to get an alcoholic to go into treatment, you don't ask them while they're inebriated. You wait till the next morning. And it's a similar thing here in the linkage center, which was originally not supposed to be for drug using. 
for people to find sanctuary, to have a shower, feel better about themselves. And that's a conducive environment for getting linked to services. What we've heard a lot is that people want dental care. They want a haircut. A lot of times, you know, having a nice fresh pair of clothes is a real boost. And when you have a moment like that where you feel better about yourself, it creates that sort of, you know, dopamine, the feeling of like positive momentum and that somebody might be in that state much more likely to take the next step for their own constructive path as opposed to, you know, going back to, you know, the drug scene and just getting back into it. Of course, it's a slow process, but at least it's a step in the right direction. Sweet is not sold on the idea that you shouldn't approach someone about treatment when they're high. She says there isn't some golden hour between when someone's using and when they get clean in which they would make that decision. I'm going to be honest, like, you want to catch me while I'm high. That's actually when I'm going to be way, way more amenable to the idea because when I'm sick, I have one thing on my mind. Like, I need to get better. If somebody was, yeah, in my ear saying like, oh, like, it's time to go to rehab now, blah, blah, blah. You'd be like, I, what? No, like, leave me alone. Like, I have one mission and you're just, you know, you're just bothering me. And if you aren't ready to get clean, you're not ready to get clean and it's not going to happen anyways. Another concern is capacity and location. The effects of fentanyl wear off fast, so people need to use it more often than other opioids to prevent withdrawal. The citywide overdose numbers offer a picture of just how big the need is. In the time that staff at the Tenderloin Center reversed around 300 overdoses, first responders and civilians reversed more than 4,000 citywide. It would be a tall order to move all those incidents indoors, For one thing, people using drugs would have to travel to the site again and again. Harm reduction workers have long said that naloxone, the reversal drug, needs to go into the hands of people who use drugs because they're the most likely to use it. Sweet is proof of that. She was revived by someone with her who happened to have naloxone. But she says that's an argument for more overdose reversal resources, not that safe consumption sites are ineffective. I don't see that they have to be mutually exclusive, but I do think that a quality of safe consumption site that doesn't exist when you're just handing out Narcan is the, you know, accessibility of, for instance, nurses who can say, hey, that abscess looks really bad. You might need, you know, medical treatment. As for making people go from wherever they're literally located to a safe consumption site to use? We're not making anybody travel. We're offering them the option to use in a safe environment With a more than $100 million windfall coming precisely for opioid interventions, Sweet asks, why should safe consumption sites be excluded from that? It's not that much money in this city. The Tenderloin Center cost $22 million to operate for not quite a year. With around 300 overdose reversals under its belt, that's a high cost per reversal. But of course, the center also provided other services. Math aside, the cost of a life is hard to calculate. At the end of the day, really like, Are we really coming down to, when we're talking about people's lives, if this was your daughter or your brother or your mom, you wouldn't really be worried about that big of a price differential in whether or not it was in a safe injection site or on the street. You would just be happy that they survived. So we're back to the issue of helping people survive long enough to get into treatment. Sweet says she agreed to go through withdrawal because she was allowed to go to a hospital to detox instead of having to kick fentanyl on the floor of a jail cell. I mean, look, there are some people that are going to get clean that way. But I think that 
if you're just getting clean because you're afraid of going to jail or afraid of pissing off your probation officer or whatever it's going to be, that's not going to last because one day you'll be out. One day you'll be off probation. We don't need to be incarcerated to be beaten to the ground. That's just part and parcel with being a drug addict or like any type of addict. There's this just overwhelming demoralization when you believe that you should have the choice to stop. This is ruining my life. I'm, I'm ultimately not happy. Once people are ready for treatment, they may face a new problem, where to go. Medication treatment, which reduces withdrawal symptoms and cravings, is readily available in San Francisco. There's inpatient treatment options, too, and some housing for people who have been through treatment and now want to abstain from substance use. But they're a little harder to access, and wait times are longer. Grant says that's what we really ought to be investing in as a city. And without some major shift, that choice might end up being made for the city. We'll dig into why San Francisco still hasn't established an official safe consumption site, even though elected leaders support it, right after a break. Before we go, a reminder that we want to hear from you. We'd like you to have a voice on this podcast, too. Do you have a solution you want the city to pursue? Know someone who's making a difference on an important issue? Send a voice memo or write an email to sfnext at sfchronicle.com. I've been hearing the arguments for and against safe consumption sites from two people who don't work in city government. At the policy level, there isn't much of an argument. San Francisco is totally on board with these centers. But we've been talking about them for years, and we currently don't have one. One major dilemma is, where would they be placed? If you've been following our Soup with the Soup series, you know all the supervisors we've talked to are for safe consumption sites in principle. In District 5, Supervisor Dean Preston would even put them in his district, which includes the Tenderloin, so it's pretty likely there would be a client base. But he knows it can't be like the Tenderloin Linkage Center was. So I wouldn't have done it like this. I think that the administration and the city should have been much more open about what we were doing and actually planned it with neighbors. You know, I mean, there were folks operating a business a half block away who learned about this in a Chronicle article. There was no rollout plan. There was no coming together. Here's District 6 Supervisor Matt Dorsey, who represents part of the city that includes Soma, Downtown, and Treasure Island. You should know for context that his last job was as a spokesperson for the San Francisco Police Department, that he is also someone with substance use disorder, and that he's in recovery. There's a lot of mistrust about the city's ability to do anything right. The Tenderloin Center, I think, was a poster child for, for how the city can try to solve a problem by making something that is just much worse. Or at least f from the perspective of people who are, who are seeing it every day. So what I said was, we're going to have to do everything we can to make sure that there is a police patrol and this has to be the safest block in the city. If we're going to cite an overdose prevention site, this can't be a place where there's a lot of drug dealing or drug use outside. This is about getting it off the street. What I'm proposing is legislation called a right to recovery priority enforcement zone. Any, any facility that exists to serve people who are in recovery or seeking recovery we're just, as a matter of policy, saying that anybody who was using drugs here will be subject to having those drugs confiscated. Anybody who is selling drugs here will be subject to immediate custody, in custody arrest. Is that not it, currently the rules? It, it, yeah, basically it would be true anywhere. By prioritizing it, it enables us to set policy in a way that sidesteps what would be an administrative interference. 
They have totally different reasons for it, but Madeline Sweet, who's in recovery from fentanyl use, and Ellen Grants from the group Mothers Against Drug Addiction and Death both think a priority enforcement zone is not going to work. The thing is that I think a lot of the the leaders think that it's going to solve the open drug use issue. It has not. It hasn't done it in Vancouver for 20 years. They've been trying this and it's gotten worse. Harlem, where they have the first, you know, on-point site, there's more open drug use. And when the city leaders who went to visit saw it, they thought, oh, well, it's not probably, I'm guessing they thought, well, it's not nearly as bad as San Francisco. Well, it's not maybe, but it's a lot worse than it was in that neighborhood. But the fact is when you have illicit drugs being used in a neighborhood, in a fixed spot, you're going to attract more drug users. You're going to attract the dealers. No matter how you try to cordon off that area with police, it never works. This is a hotly debated question, actually. The anecdotal evidence, angry neighbors and businesses, says complaints often rise after sites open. The research is mixed, with studies coming to both conclusions, that sites increase and decrease nearby drug use, crime, and homelessness. The question San Francisco is facing is, can the city establish these sites and make these areas around them safe and pristine? Here's Madeline Sweet again, who nearly died of an overdose. I would just say that in general, I think a zero tolerance policy when it comes to stuff like that is just a bad idea because it's not addressing the problem. Like the people that are really making money off this, that is an important step, right? But you remove a drug dealer, a low-level drug dealer off the street, and they'll be replaced in two seconds. It's just not meaningful or effective. San Francisco has been talking about safe consumption sites for years now. It hasn't happened. And that's primarily because the sites are against federal law. The Biden administration isn't likely to send anyone after the city if it pursues safe consumption sites. So far, it hasn't sent anyone after the two sites operating in New York City. But there's no telling what a future administration might prioritize for federal law enforcement. Matt Dorsey, the District 6 supervisor, says it would have been helpful if the governor had signed a bill approving safe consumption sites in California. Instead, he vetoed it. The cover of state law would have helped to mount a defense against any potential federal crackdown. Dorsey also pointed out that the relevant statute of limitations might allow a future administration to reach back and enforce against the city even if the city shut the centers down, say, right after an election. To get around this, the Board of Supervisors and the mayor are trying to follow the New York model. New York has a supportive governor, so that's one piece of the puzzle missing. But in New York, a nonprofit called OnPoint operates two safe consumption sites. The city administration approved, but the nonprofit is running everything. San Francisco's government has set up a system for that, even creating avenues for funding to be shifted over to nonprofits. That means San Francisco wouldn't be on the hook for spending its public dollars on these sites. I asked Supervisor Matt Dorsey, it doesn't seem like anyone's ready to do this. I, somebody's going to have to take the risk. Who? Well, there are are a few nonprofits, HealthRight360, AIDS Foundation, and Gubria Project. After this interview, it came out that those nonprofits are unable or unwilling to launch a site without full financial support from the city. As The Chronicle has reported, the San Francisco AIDS Foundation's board has concerns about not having city support. The Gubbio Project can't afford it. And HealthRight360 said using private funding for a long-term project like safe consumption sites is not financially sustainable. I know that some of the nonprofits would like the city to indemnify them or support them. I don't think that's the New York model. 
I mean, this is something we're trying to predict what a DeSantis administration is going to do. Yeah. And I think, you know, Hillary Ron and I agree that if, God forbid, there was a, a DeSantis administration, we would have to close immediately. We can't put the city or our nonprofits at risk of that. Would there still be the ability to go back with the statute of limitations? Probably. I will say that I think sometimes as policymakers and as city officials, we have been at our best as a city when we take risks. We did it with marriage. We have done it many times. There's a possibility we're going to lose, but we're going to push the envelope. At this point, it's not clear who would be doing the pushing. I asked Ellen Grants from the Mothers Against Drug Addiction and Deaths group, do you think we're actually going to end up with a safe consumption site in San Francisco? Not if I can help it. No, I just don't think, and again, I mean, I'm not not even saying I love the idea, but man, you know, if our budget is stretched, this is not what we need. This is really not, it's too risky. Sweet, for her part, is convinced we should do it. I am a strong believer in the premise that we should try to keep addicts alive. Studies show that almost three out of four people will find recovery, but it takes us about eight to 10 years to get clean. And so enabling people to survive that period is so crucial because, you know, you obviously can't enjoy recovery dead, right? San Francisco has a plan for keeping people alive. Safe consumption sites figure heavily into it, but they're not the silver bullet. Next week, we'll have the person in charge of that plan, the head of the city's Office of Overdose Prevention, walk us through it. Fixing Our City is part of the San Francisco Chronicle's SF Next project, where we explore how the city will chart its future and address its biggest challenges. Send an email to sfnext at sfchronicle.com. You can also DM us on Twitter. We're at sfnext. I'm Laura Wenis. Coming up on SF Next, Fixing Our City, we'll hear about San Francisco's plan for reducing overdose deaths and drug use more broadly from the doctor hired explicitly to tackle this challenge. See you next week. Cynthia Lopez produces and reports for Fixing Our City. Gary Baca is our sound engineer. King Kaufman is the executive producer. Jonathan Krim is the SF Next project editor. Fixing Our City is part of the San Francisco Chronicle's SF Next project, exploring how the city will shape its future and tackle its biggest problems. Read stories by our reporters, check out interactive data breakdowns, and find our podcast archive at sfchronicle.com sfnext. If you have a solution you'd like us to cover or you know about a city that's doing something right, get in touch. Shoot an email to sfnext at sfchronicle.com or find us on Twitter at sfnext. <laughs>